0: This is David Beeson inviting you to join me in blowing a bubble or two in chapter 43 of A History of England. Only one of the bubbles was British, but boy, was it a good one. The South Sea Company was a brilliant scheme. One of those superb ideas from which everyone gets rich quick, including the company itself, individual shareholders and even the government. Not just win-win, but win-win-win. What could possibly go wrong? Okay, okay, you guessed, it would all go swooshing down the drain in time. The initial idea looked excellent. Britain, as we've seen, could afford the war of Spanish Succession. Its burgeoning businesses meant that it had the resources to finance a long conflict in a way that other nations didn't. The French were reduced to unbearable taxation and mass poverty. Even the Dutch, forced by the war to divert far too much of their capital to the needs of the military, saw their top spot in international trade rapidly receding into a nostalgic memory. But if Britain had deep enough pockets, the only way the British government could manage was by dipping into those pockets through credit. It ran up a level of debt which frightened ministers. So, with the war over, government started to get anxious to reduce the debt sharply. Then the South Sea Company came along, offering to shoulder a large portion of the national debt on behalf of the government. It leapt at the chance. Specifically, what the company offered to do was take over a great many government annuities. These were yearly payments to individuals throughout their lives. In effect, they were pension schemes bought by individuals for a sum paid to the government, which had raised significant funds that way. But as Britain's needs had increased, so had the interest rates government had to pay, peaking at 6%. That was fine if the beneficiaries died young, so the annuity stopped, but if they lived into ripe old age, the cost could prove crippling. The company took many of them over. But it was no keener than government on paying out those massive yearly sums for too long. So the company's aim became to swap as many as possible of the annuities for its own shares. That was made easy and they found plenty of takers since the shares in the company were growing massively in value. In fact, people were dying to exchange their boring, if reliable, annuities for shares, since rapidly rising share values meant they could multiply their stakes several times over in just a few months. At least on paper. The fortunes apparently being made by investors in the South Sea Company led to a rapidly growing and spreading enthusiasm for shares generally. Such was the appetite for buying shares, any shares, that new companies kept springing up, ready to cash in on the buying frenzy. There were new companies to improve gardens, to convert mercury into a manuable metal, to build a perpetual motion machine, which is a physical impossibility. Best of all was a company that gave its purpose as, for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but nobody to know what it is. It hardly mattered what your company was set up to do. If it was a company and if it was offering shares for sale, people bought them. If they had to, they borrowed money to fund their share purchases. And they found borrowing money easy since lenders were happy to advance them the loans for such a purpose. But what about the South Sea Company itself? What was it in business for? It wasn't like the East India Company, established for over a century and with a solid track record of dependable, profitable trade with India and the Far East. In fact, it was much more like a French venture which had been its model, the Mississippi Company. The French operation took on huge amounts of public debt in return for a monopoly of trade to various colonies, hoping to finance the former with profits from the latter. So, what did the South Sea Company get for taking on all that debt? The government granted it the exclusive right to trade in the South Seas and West Indies, which, when it came to profits, principally meant trading in slaves. The problem with this arrangement is that Britain was in no position to offer exclusive rights to anything in the South Seas, where the possessions were mostly Spanish or Portuguese. Even in the West Indies, Britain only held a small number of islands. It was highly unlikely that either Spain or Portugal was going to say, Oh, the British government has granted you the exclusive right to trade with our possessions, without even consulting us, let alone getting our permission. Well, if the British government's done that, of course we'll honour the deal. Do come in and help yourself to any opportunities that crop up. Let's remember that for the early years of the South Sea Company, Britain was at war with Spain and could hardly expect favourable treatment in the Spanish Empire. On the other hand, that probably didn't matter too much. The company wasn't intended to do much trading. It was only intended to keep growing its share value. Spectacular growth for the first nine years of its existence from 1711 gave rise to the conviction common to all financial bubbles that it would go on forever. Look what happened to speculation in mortgages leading up to the 2008 crash. When everything's going so swimmingly, why, people wonder? Should the good times ever stop? Well, what makes them stop is when big investors decide that they aren't going to go on much longer. They don't see how share values can increase indefinitely with no actual business to back them up. So they decide to take their profits. That means that they sell their shares, taking the cash they've gained because the price at which they're selling is so much higher than the price at which they bought. The problem is that just as share prices rose when everyone wanted to buy them, when people started selling, the prices began to fall. With the South Sea Bubble, that happened in 1720. The investors who acted in time did very well indeed. Isaac Newton, the great physicist of the laws of motion and gravitation, who apparently also had an excellent head for finance, he ended his career running the Royal Mint, made £7,000 from the South Sea Bubble, over £600,000 in today's terms. Even more impressive was Thomas Guy, who made £180,000, equivalent to £16 million today, to add to an already considerable fortune. He became quite the philanthropist, and in particular, endowed Guy's Hospital in South London. Guy's remains one of England's great teaching hospitals. That makes it a lasting monument to him, and to the possibility of making a fortune, even from a financial disaster. As investors cashed in, the share price began to fall and more people tried to sell, accelerating the fall still further. The bubble had burst. The slip in values turned into a crash. Ironically, the model for the South Sea Company, the French Mississippi Company, had gone the same way just a few months earlier. Fortunes were lost and many who thought they were rich were thrown into penury. Bankruptcies ballooned, first among those who'd borrowed money to buy shares, then among those who'd lent them the money in the first place. It was a catastrophe. Where there'd been unbridled joy, suddenly there was only wailing. Inevitably, there was also a hunt for scapegoats, and heads would have to roll, metaphorically at least. Where better to find such heads than among government ministers – One such minister was able to point to some mild comments he'd made a few months earlier about the danger of the bubble. In fact, he'd sold out, making a handsome profit on his investment, about a thousand percent, which I think I can safely say most people would regard as reasonably successful. But if he could point with pride to his decision to sell shares as proof of his prescience, what he didn't admit is that he'd had a change of heart at the end and had been desperately trying to buy back in just before the collapse. He was only saved by the inefficiency of the postal service. The letter he sent bidding for shares arrived too late to lose him his money. That story wouldn't have done his reputation for financial skill any good at all, and we shall see that this reputation was key to his future career. So, who was this lucky minister? Give me a drumroll, please. It's time to meet Robert Walpole. Robin to his friends, Robin to his enemies too, as it happens, and in time there would be plenty of them. He proved to be the man with a safe pair of hands to conduct Britain out of the South Sea Bubble crisis. We'll be getting to know him a little better in our next episode. Thanks for listening.